Pastor Dwayne. Morning, church. It's great to be with you. Uh, happy December, beginning to look an awful lot like Christmas around here. And in that, I'm very excited uh, to be opening up a brand new three-week series in which Pastor Todd and I will be turning our attention to the nativity story, to the beginning of the earthly life of Jesus, and specifically to three ways in which Jesus' coming fulfilled prophecies made hundreds of years before his arrival and how he fulfilled those things. It's a going to be a wonderful time together that hopefully the Lord will use to captivate our minds, to uh, blow our hearts wide open uh, with love for him. Because as we consider these things, as the reality of, of Jesus's fulfilling prophecy made hundreds of years before he would arrive, these things captivate our imaginations because we're fascinated with the future. We love trying to predict the future. We use patterns and trends to analyze things like economies and the stock market to try to find out what's going to happen. The lottery, sports betting, as it's grown in popularity over the last little bit, is founded on this idea of what numbers are going to come up, of who's going to win the game, who's going to cover the spread. Entire industries are focused on the predicting of what might come. It's been coined futurism, the study and management of the future. And there was an article written in the Washington Post back in 2019, which said this, futurism is all around us, even if we usually don't notice it. We listen to what experts and talking heads have to say about tomorrow because it helps us to make decisions and to feel more in control. Our fascination with the future is part of the reason why the last three years were so jarring for us. It seemed as if the entirety of our lives hung in the balance of the next press conference, of the next announcement. It revealed to us that we have no control. Resource after resource has been produced since then, trying to predict where we might go from there. There's no pattern. There's no human analytic. There is no amount of the study of futurism that could have predicted the way in which Jesus Christ came. We have no frame of reference for what we read in our text this morning as Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah when it's recorded for us in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 that the, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. A prophecy made some 600 years before Jesus would make his appearance. One of the incredible proofs of the sovereignty of God and the reality of the fact that he is the only one truly in control. That Jesus the Christ 
would fulfill 300 or so prophecies made about him, which were declared decades, centuries before he would come. It reveals for us the reality that Jesus' coming changed everything. And if you believe it, it will change everything for you. Let's turn our attention to the text this morning, as Pastor Duane's mentioned, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. These are God's words to us this morning. Matthew records, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's bow our heads in prayer together, and then we'll get into this. Father, we thank you for the wonder of this season. As we consider the reality of of your son's coming as we look to your word, living and active, we pray that you would reveal to us the wonder of your majesty, of your might, and of your mission. Use your word to change us, we pray. Find, Lord, and create in us good hearts to receive what you have for us, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Here's what we're going after this morning. Jesus' coming changes everything for me. And it most certainly did for Joseph. In fact, see this first, that Jesus does this. He changes everything by turning my world upside down. Now, the cultural difference between, between today and the time of Mary and Joseph would have us fail to fully understand how significant it was when Mary was discovered to be pregnant. In verse 18, it's recorded for us that she, that Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph. Now we read this, and when we think betrothal, we think engagement. We think that there must have been a time when Joseph took Mary, whom he loved so much, to a, a spot that was significant for them as a couple. He had wonderful, amazing, sappy, lovey things to say before he got down on one knee, opened up the ring box. She received, there was, there was a photographer hiding in the bushes. The family was watching way off, just weeping tears of joy, right? That's what we think when we think engagement, don't we? But decidedly different back in Bible times. The process of engagement, the process of betrothal was more like a negotiation between two families. 
They would come together, the husband's family and the wife's family would sit down. They would agree that the two would be married. There would be a discussion on what the dowry would be, what the husband's family would pay uh, to the wife's family. And then a formal agreement would be made in the presence of witnesses that the two would be married about a year from the time that they signed this legally binding agreement. Which, by the way, could only be broken through the formal process of divorce. It was taken far more seriously, we could say, back then. And the couple would be referred to as husband and wife, but would be unable to consummate their marriage until the official ceremony took place, where there would be, of course, a big time of celebration that may have lasted a few days, and then the husband would take his wife home, and upon that, they would be married. So if sexual relations took place during that time between the couple, it was considered immorality. If it was to take place with somebody outside of the couple, it was to be considered adultery. And so for Mary to be found pregnant before she and Joseph were officially married was a massive deal. Under the Mosaic law, adultery carried the punishment of death. Or at the very least, it was an offense against the law that brought incredible shame upon all parties involved. So let's enter into this situation from Joseph's perspective for a moment. Discovering of his wife to be pregnant outside of wedlock would have turned his world upside down. From Joseph's perspective, his wife has cheated on him. He has every right to bring her and her family incredible shame, if not to have her put to death. In fact, he should be bringing this thing to light publicly in order to clear his name and maintain his personal righteousness to make sure that everyone knew he wasn't the one that got Mary pregnant. No doubt a deeply distressing and upsetting time for him. Yet verse 19 records that Joseph being a just man, morally right and fair, Knowing what he must do, but with deep compassion, Joseph resolved to divorce Mary quietly. I mean, so, so Joseph, like, certified grade A good guy, okay? Awesome move. Making, making what he had to do be done with great gentleness. And then we see verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This angel shows up and brings clarity to the situation. Mary had not been unfaithful. This baby growing inside of her was put there by the Holy Spirit. So Joseph shouldn't hesitate to bring Mary into his home as his wife, to follow through with the commitment that they made, to even raise for him to adopt this child into his own family. And I hope you see the grace of God here. That God enters into Joseph's mess. 
he comes in and brings clarity to his confusion. A beautiful picture of the way God relates to us. In his grace, the mess of your life is not something he shies away from. If he enters in. And not only that, see the grace of God in the fact that Joseph, like Mary, has also been brought into the greatest mystery and miracle this world has ever seen the incarnation of God coming in the flesh. This child growing inside of his betrothed is one who will save his people from their sins. An incredible claim. And please let us not forget that while the virgin birth is something that is familiar for those of us who have grown up in the church, who have any sort of familiarity with the Christmas story, this would have been completely unfathomable for Joseph to hear. Completely unheard of. For him in this day. So for those keeping track at home, Joseph's being asked to carry on with this originally scheduled marriage to his betrothed, who's pregnant with a baby that he had absolutely no part in bringing about with the cultural complications of that. I mean, can you imagine the conversation? No, no, no. Mary wasn't impregnated by me or out of wedlock. The Holy Spirit put that baby there. Uh, Okay, Joseph. It was put there by the Holy Spirit, which, which, by the way, Joseph was now told to adopt into his family who would be the savior of the world from their sins. You got it, Joseph? All good? Go get him, buddy. And now God is turning Joseph's world upside down in a completely different way. Can you imagine the feeling that he had hearing these things? No doubt the relief to hear that his wife had not been unfaithful, but almost certainly the confusion, the questions, how overwhelmed he must have felt about this child that he would welcome into his home. Interestingly enough, the Gospel of Luke's record of Mary's interaction with the angel of Gabriel shows us that the Angel Gabriel told Mary just the name of Jesus, which would have carried significance, of course. Jesus is the Greek version of Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. But this angel to Joseph tells him not just the name, but the purpose. Not just Yahweh saves, but the fact that this baby would come to save his people from their He would be raising the one who would bring salvation to the people of God from their sins. Of course, we on this side of history have the blessing of the entirety of Scripture to know the full reality of just what Joseph was promised. And we know what it means fully when the angel says that he, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. And in the Christmas season, we view the manger in which Jesus was laid, in which his life began, in light of the cross that he would be laid on, nailed to, and on which his life would end. We view 
the manger he was laid in as his life began in light of the tomb he was laid in as his life ended. Of course, he would not stay there. Jesus came to die that we might have life. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Which sums up well what Jesus himself would go on to say in his ministry recorded for us in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you would have life in his name, Jesus bids you die to your old sinful self. If you have been saved from your sins, welcomed into the family of God by this one he has sent, then everything you would pursue in your sinful flesh or in this sinful world must be put to death. That's why Jesus came. And if that doesn't change who you are, if you claim to be saved by Jesus and that hasn't resulted in your life changing, then something doesn't add up. Jesus completely changes everything. He turns your world on its head. It's what causes unbelieving friends and family members to ask, what's different about you? You've changed. When they see the reality that your priorities, your passions, everything about who you are is now under the authority of Jesus Christ. And it's a natural result. If, if you have been saved by Jesus Christ, you will be changed by Jesus Christ. So when Jesus comes into your life, he turns your world on its head by calling you to something different. Like he did for his adopted father, adoptive father. So what's he calling you to change about your life today? What's he calling you to change about the way you handle your money? What's he calling you to change about your relationships? Your perspective toward that person? What's he calling you to change about your priorities? skipped over a key point that I want to come back to about what the angel says to Joseph. Take a look back at verse 20 for a moment. Critical aspect of why Jesus is being welcomed into Joseph's family was because, notice the angel calls him Joseph, son of David. Joseph was in the lineage of King David, to which God promised, recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that from David's line, God would raise up a king who would reign on the throne forever. By virtue of, of his adoption into Joseph's family, Jesus is tied to the line of David, fulfilling another one of the promises made hundreds of years before he came. And in this, we see the second way that Jesus changes everything. He does so by miraculously fulfilling God's promise. The qualifications of, of Jesus to be Savior come from who he is and the way in which 
he came. And he came in stunning fashion. Let's look again at verse 22. All this, all that the angel had said, all that happened beforehand took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And herein lies the wonder of the greatest miracle the world has ever seen, the incarnation of God becoming flesh. You said already, Matthew's quoting Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and, and there's a fair amount of debate that comes along with this verse. They, scholars wonder if there was ever a partial fulfillment in Isaiah's time, if it related to a child at that point in time. Whatever the partial fulfillment may be, the clear and complete fulfillment that we know to be true about what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it's, it's clear and completely fulfilled in Mary, the virgin mother, and Jesus, her divine son. And even that claim is incredible and miraculous to consider. Virgin mother is a naturally impossible phrase. It's a shocking statement that Jesus would be born to a woman outside of the normal ways that human beings are born. This was, without a doubt, a miraculous, supernatural work. But unlike the stories of mythology, as D.A. Carson writes in his commentary, there is no hint of pagan deity human coupling in crassly physical terms. Instead, the power of the Lord manifest in the Holy Spirit miraculously brought about the conception. The miracle of the virgin birth prophesied hundreds of years before and sovereignly brought about by God is the first step in understanding three critical aspects about who Jesus is and who he was and what his work here on earth was all about. And listen, lose the virgin birth, you lose all of these things. This is a critical aspect of our faith. Of the awesome miracles we believe in. What is given to us here in Matthew chapter 1 is foundational for everything we understand about Jesus because the virgin birth reveals three things. See this first, the true humanity of Jesus. Jesus was born of a woman as we all are with the full realities of what that means. And in that, I mean, I'm sorry to say, not sorry, actually, that the beloved Christmas song, Away in a Manger, is just categorically false, okay? Wouldn't be Christmas at harvest unless we ruined something about what you believe traditionally about Christmas, okay? The little Lord Jesus, no crying, he makes, nope, incorrect, all right? If you spend any time with an infant, as good as they may be or not, you know they are anything but quiet. It might have been a holy night, it was not a silent night, Okay? Jesus was fully human. And as one born of a human, he had all the characteristics of a human, which means as he was born, he cried. The scriptures confirm this for us. Jesus had all the characteristics of a human. Jesus got tired, Matthew 8. Jesus got hungry, Matthew 4. Luke 2.52 records that he increased in wisdom. Jesus learned new things in the same way that other kids do. 
Author and pastor David Platt wrote about this in this way. Sometimes we get this idea that Jesus came out of the womb using words like kingdom, substitution, and propitiation, righteousness, but that's just not the case. Jesus had a human mind and grew in his understanding and knowledge. He had to learn how to walk and talk. Jesus had emotions. He was troubled. He cried. Although not explicitly recorded in scripture, it's really not much of a stretch for us to believe then that in the same way he was happy. He laughed. He played as a child. And in perhaps the best example of Jesus's humanity to many he knew before his ministry began, he was just ordinary. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 to 56, when Jesus came back to his hometown and taught, the people replied, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Jesus had true humanity. It's a reality for us of the virgin birth and one of the important aspects of his nature that we affirm because in this, Jesus can fully identify with us. He knows what it's like to be you. He can sympathize with you because of his human experience. Yet, of course, with one key and critical difference. Hebrews 4.15 tells us he did it all without sin. Not once in his childhood did Jesus lie. Not once did he disobey his parents. Not once did he steal. Not once did he throw a temper tantrum in the Isle of Zares because he wasn't getting what he wanted, okay? Or in the, you know, ancient Nazareth equivalent of Zares, okay? Jesus was truly human, yet without sin. Which brings us to this next critical part of what the virgin birth reveals, and that is the true divinity of Jesus. He was truly human. He was also truly divine. So while Jesus was born of a woman, he was not conceived in the normal ways that humans are conceived. He had no true earthly father. He had an adoptive father. And so in that, he was not conceived in sin. And thus, he could keep all the realities of his deity in his humanity. This is what allowed him to exercise power over disease. Because only God can heal the lame. Only God can cleanse the leper. Only God can cause the paralyzed to get up and walk again by just his words. This is what allowed his command over nature to rebuke the storm in Matthew chapter 8 and for the winds and the waves, waves to cease their raging because only God can have power over nature by just his words. It's what allowed him to have authority over sin, declaring them to be forgiven by simply speaking, which only God has the authority over. And this is what allowed him to have 
control over death. Not only raising others to life, but himself. John 10, 17 says, Jesus says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, Jesus says, because only God has control over it. Jesus has all the realities of his being God, his divinity in himself. So in this, we must believe that both Jesus' human nature and his divine nature are distinct but unified. He is one person. And in all he was and in all he did, his natures worked in perfect unity. This is one of the fundamental understandings and beliefs that we have of our Savior. And this full reality of Jesus' incarnation is where we differ from those beliefs of Muslims, of Jews, of Jehovah's Witnesses, and others who forsake this doctrine. Because in God's perfect sovereignty and perfect wisdom, he ordained the miraculous fulfilling of the promise made of the way Jesus came in fullness of humanity and fullness of deity. So that he could identify with us. And so that he could be the only one suitable to complete the purpose for which he came. Which is where we see this final aspect that the virgin birth reveals. Thirdly, the supernatural reality of salvation. So we said it before, we said it already, the virgin birth is the most incredible mystery of all of creation because it affirms all that we've been talking about already, but it also reveals that God is faithful to his word. We read it, verse 22 says that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. God always keeps his promises. The promise he made in Isaiah 7, 14. The promise he made to David in 2 Samuel 7. The promise God made in the very beginning pages of scripture when sin entered the world. And, and in Genesis 3.15, God said that he would raise up an offspring that would crush Satan's head. That offspring is this Jesus. In which God would deliver his people from their sinful ways inherited through Adam's rebellion and the sinful ways that we ourselves are guilty of because we willingly gave ourselves up to them. That is the reality for each of us. Born into sin and guilty of sin by our own doing. But this offspring, Jesus, would not inherit sinfulness through Adam like we do by virtue of his miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. Not, by the way, not because Mary, his mom, was sinless. A way we decidedly differ from the beliefs and teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. Jesus did not inherit his sinlessness because of his mom. Jesus himself would not sin, but he would willingly give himself up take our sin upon himself. 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He is the way that any who come to him could be rescued from their sin, restored and reconciled in relationship to God through faith in God with us, Emmanuel, the Son of God who came. Jesus is with us to make salvation possible, and he is with us to bring salvation to bear in our lives as we live for him. And the nature of Jesus and the reality of salvation is all at stake in the virgin birth. It's why we hold to this. It's why we preach and proclaim this. Because the nativity story, like the scriptures themselves, from the very beginning, proclaim the good news of the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the miraculous fulfillment of the promise God made hundreds of years before that a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son, Jesus offers in a new reality for all who believe in him. For all who would confess with their mouth that he is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. And in that, he changed everything. In his coming, he changed everything. Which leads us finally to this. He changes everything for me by compelling me to faithful obedience. Now, of course, Joseph wasn't privy to all we've just discussed. But despite that, after all that has been brought to him, Joseph doesn't ask for some time to sit on it. He doesn't ask for an extra night to sleep on what the angels told him. He doesn't sit on his hands waiting to see if something's going to change. What does Joseph do? Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus as he had been told to do. Joseph obeys immediately. He does. He goes. He gets after what he had been instructed to do. He has trust enough to know that this angel, this this messenger from God has just that, a message to him from God. And he complies without questioning. Now, parents, I know um, that for some of you here in the room or maybe watching online, that a couple of the things we've talked about this morning might raise some questions that you have to address. Uh, In fact, what I'm about to say is probably going to, you know, if you haven't had the talk already, raise some questions, but that's okay. It's fine. Lean into that. We preach God's word here. We're going to say what it says. Bible says that Joseph knew her not. He was not intimate with his wife until after the baby was born, as was necessary. So not only did Joseph obey, but he was willing even to sacrifice something that would have been a right of his in marriage. 
And no doubt, I mean, he was a newlywed after all. He was probably looking forward to it. He obeyed, he sacrificed in order that the birth of Jesus would take place as was necessary. When the Christ appeared into his life, Joseph faithfully obeyed. So if Jesus has appeared in your life, if he has truly saved you, if he is truly saving you, which is a natural result of being saved by Jesus, by the way, if you are saved, if your life is saved by him, then your life is changed by him. If it's not, something's wrong. If he's truly saved you, then he is compelling you to faithfully obey him and his word today. He compels me to obedience in everything that I am. Joseph took Mary, despite what he may have had to face from the culture that he lived in. He heard the word of God and acted upon it immediately, not waiting to see if something changed, but heard the word of the Lord and did it. So how is God calling you to faithful obedience to his word today? God is calling you, unbeliever, doubter, skeptic, scorner. God is calling you this Christmas to see the reality of the Son who he's sent. To understand that in his love, he wants to change everything for you. Will you faithfully obey the call? Will you bow the knee? Will you cry out for forgiveness, understanding your sin? And in repentance, turn to him? God's calling you, follower of Jesus, to faithful obedience to him today. So stop making excuses. Make that decision he's put on your heart that you've been putting off. Reach out to that person. That broken relationship that you and your pride want no business with. Change your heart towards somebody you'd consider your enemy. Give in generosity out of what God has given to you. Be rid of that sin that's been clinging to you for too long. Confess it. Repent and turn to him. See your savior. How he came. What he did for you. And obey him faithfully. See Joseph's example. See, Jesus' example as well. He's not calling you to something that he did not do himself. John chapter 10. Sorry, John chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Emmanuel has come. He's changed everything.
will you faithfully obey him? All the hope that we could ever need this Christmas season is in God with us. And it's no coincidence that from the very beginning of his time on this earth to the very end, they're marked with the promise of his being with us. He is Emmanuel. His coming marked the incredible reality of God stepping into the earth he formed. Just as it was prophesied to be. Because this miracle took place as it was prophesied to be, everything about the rest of Jesus' life makes total sense to us. Of course, he would walk on the water. He's God with us. He created the water. Of course, he'd feed 5,000 or more people with five loaves of bread and two fish. He's God with us. He created the fish and the bread he fed them with. Of course, he would rise from the grave. He's God with us. He has authority over life and death. The promise he makes upon his arrival in Matthew chapter 1 is, I'm God, and I'm with you. The promise he makes in his ascension as he leaves this earth to take up his rightful place at the right hand of the throne of God the Father in Matthew 28 is, I'm God, and I'll be with you. And the promise that we cling to here and now as those whose lives are completely changed, whose worlds have been turned upside down by the miraculous fulfillment of the promise made. Seeking to live our lives in faithful obedience is what we read the promise in Revelation 21. I'm God, and one day you'll be with me. That's what we celebrate this Christmas. Jesus is God with us. And that changes everything you believe in him. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, it's with humility that we bow before incredible proclamation that we have spent time going through in your word. Who are we, Jesus, that you would step down into this earth you formed, that you would live to die, so that we may have life in your name. So in that, Lord, we pray for those here in the room hearing who have not yet bowed the knee. We pray for those on the live stream. We pray for those watching on demand who have not yet surrendered themselves to you. We pray, Lord, that they would see the incredible reality of what you have done for them this Christmas, of what you offer them in yourself, Jesus of the love, mercy, and grace that can be theirs, new every day in you. We pray you'd save them this Christmas. For those of us here who have received these wonderful things from you, Lord, renew our wonder, our love for you. Fix our eyes on the light of the life of Christ, of what is ours in him, 
what is to come for us in him. We may love, follow, pursue him in all that we are. You are God with us, Jesus. You are with us by virtue of the Holy Spirit now. So renew us, change us, mold us into your image for your glory. We pray in your wonderful, mighty, precious name. Amen.